I remember my first time in New York City. I was a young person, and we went to see a laser light show at a planetarium. The lasers were choreographed to respond to the music of the Beatles. So Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds would zip across the ceiling in bright looping circles of green and red. I'm not sure, but I think they only had two colors of lasers at the time. Or it was the holidays. Or I'm colorblind. The image that I recall most about that night was when they set fixing a hole to laser, and the image that appeared on the planetarium walls was an older man sitting alone as water filled up the room around him. Just a lonely old fella dealing with life's challenges. They played all of Sergeant Pepper's, and that's the image that stuck with me. I was seven, but still I knew what the future held for me. Oh, well, time to open up the portal that leads us to the deep night, which might be the place we're in already. Hello, it's me, Dale Seaver, your host for another seasonally affected hour of regrets, revelations, and rising stars. Here in the deep night, we come to you, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus, and a special thank you to our sponsors, the Gowanus Souvenir Shop, which has all the wonderful gifts you'll need uh, for the holidays. I'm busy this time of year. Yes, I'm hosing down the sheep bladders and lashing the welcoming stones with leather straps in anticipation of another exciting solstice celebration, which we'll report on in an upcoming episode of this program. Do you ever walk around this wonderful city of ours and think, how did that get there? Can I take these cobblestones home for a crafting project? How did people in the 1800s clean their shoes? What kind of shoes did they have? What were they made of? What's a knickerbocker? Well, it's a busy place, and we can all get bogged down in weird rituals in our apartments, or we get caught up in wanting to go out and then thinking, you're going to go, and then canceling, because where is it? Bay Ridge, really? Oh, maybe if I just ignore that text. The point is, my guest tonight is no stranger to pursuing alleyways of curiosity, and she's probably canceled a plan or two just in the making of her new book, Tenements, Towers, and Trash, an Unconventional Illustrated History of New York City, a book that I'm quite fond of, because it's beautiful to look at, but also informative and funny and touching. When I think of all the places I've lived or had emotional connections to, well, I start to sob uncontrollably. That's how important spaces are to me. And this book captures something of that longing, but also the wonder of this great metropolis that has been the backdrop and home to so many inventors and activists and agitators and dreamers. The holidays are upon us, and sometimes you think, should I get them a book? And it's like, well, I don't know what they like. They'll like this. It's gorgeous. Trust me. I'd put it in your shopping cart myself if I could. Alexa, if you can hear me, order the book. Well, let's read a bio of my guests. Wouldn't that be something? Julia Wirtz is a professional cartoonist, amateur historian, and part-time urban explorer slash photographer. She made the comic books The Fart Party, Volume 1 and Volume 2, and the graphic novels Drinking at the Movies, which I highly recommend, and The Infinite Weight and Other Stories, which I would also recommend. But uh, both of those were nominated for Eisner Awards. That's not bad. That's a good one to get. Her last uh, book was Museum of Mistakes, the Fart Party Collection, and her newest book titled 
Tenements, Towers, and Trash, as I said, uh, just came out in the fall of this year from Hatchet. She currently does monthly comics and illustrations for The New Yorker. Ever heard of it? Uh, her work has also appeared in The New York Times, Harper's Magazine, The Believer, Medium, and other places. Well, let's go now to the deep night, further, ever further into that great deep night for our discussion with Julia Wirtz. Julia Wirtz, hello. Hi. Thank you for joining me in the deep night. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. It took a moment to get us together. My God, I started to think it wasn't going to happen. But it did. Yes, which is my fault because I'm running around. Things were on fire. <laughs> the things were happening. Speaking of, how is everything? Your your family was back there in the uh, wildfires in uh, Northern California. Yes, um, everybody's fine. Um, unfortunately, I what such a serious way to start this off. I know some people who lost houses, but um, yes, uh, it, it was fine. I was evacuated and without power for about a week. Um, yeah. but I just stayed at my mom's house. It was insane. It's insane to like live with fire everywhere, but then yes. just go to the grocery market and be like, I need some almond milk. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Yeah. Sometimes. Well, we were scheduled to do something, and then all of a sudden the world went on fire, mm -hmm. and basically that's the state that it's in, but this was specifically a fire. This was, yeah, you it's flew a back literal to, fire. to go right into the, into the smoke and ash and everything. Some remarkable stories of... Uh, of surviving that, of people holding each other in pools all night. Yeah. Which sounds uh, like uh, fun were it not for the in inferno but uh, and some, some devastation. But we've made some donations to some of the people out there, and we uh, continue to follow the good work that is being done, and I'm glad to hear everything's okay. Yeah. When I first moved to uh, San Francisco in the Bay Area, I spent some formative time out there. One of the first places I went to was Sebastopol and uh, up there in Petaluma and all that kind of stuff. And I remember my first horchata, you know, and driving up there and spending time. It's beautiful country is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially Petaluma, which is like the egg capital of the world. That's right. Known for chickens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, more known for eggs or more known for chickens? It can only be one. <laughs> <laughs> the age-old question. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. In, in Sebastopol, did you ever go to, there's a carnivorous plants nursery. Oh. And this guy like traveled around the world and he collected all these different carnivorous plants. Well, I'm and sorry to say I've never been. Nursery out there. Yeah. Really? You spent some time there? No, I've never been. <laughs> <laughs> well, we love that they're out there and that they exist. Yeah. And I maybe... mean, I've been to Sebastopol, but not the nursery. Yes, sure. Yeah, I think I may have even bought almond milk in Sebastopol. Oh yeah. That's Before a... it was big. Oh, look at you, on top of the trends. <laughs> I know. A little horchata, then some more almond milk. It was a lot of dairy during my time in San Francisco. But that, is almond milk dairy? No. What is it? No. Something else. Some, anyhow, things that were milky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I wanted to talk about, because we, we are in this wave of destruction mm -hmm. uh, that's happening, though we got a little hope here and there it happens. Um, this constant stuff is dragging us down. Maybe it's because of the holidays, but because this is a comedy podcast, I thought we'd talk a little bit about sadness right off the top. Sure, right, exactly. Like, everything's on fire, a bunch of people died. <laughs> but that is what I'm feeling, is, is sadness at this time, and I feel like there's a little bit of that in your work, because I've read, not a little mm -hmm. bit, but there is something to it, and something maybe longing is more precise a description. I don't know, that's what I'm projecting onto the work when I read it. Uh, uh, and and maybe that squares or it doesn't. 
I mean, I think it does. It's interesting to me to see how people interpret it, mm-hmm. um, especially with the the New York City book. Some people see it as like a celebration of the city. Some people see it as a mourning of the city. And because it there's a lot of illustration and not as much dialogue, people then project them what they want into it. And you know, if you've lived here, you're gonna have a view that's you know carried by your own time here. If you don't live here, you might just see it as like a bunch of illustrations about a city you don't care about. Right. And specifically, and continuing my great trend of identifying the thing we're talking about after the fact, uh, this is the new book, uh, Tenements, Towers, and Trash, mm-hmm. an Unconventional uh, History of New York. Um, is that what we're doing? I feel like we're... Uh, unconventional, an unconventional illustrated, illustrated history. history. Yeah. Yes, I had it right here of New York City. So, and a part of it is that you're looking at what once was, and then how it's changed, at least up to 2016, 17, something like that. Yeah. As changes continue. Oh, it's pages of it are already irrelevant. I've gone to some some of the then and now. So you know, I'll draw something in the early 1900s. Yes. Then I would draw it when I lived here, which was uh, 2006 to 2016. And then I, when I keep coming back to visit, I'll go to the places, and it's already gone. Like, the cover of the book is gone. It's like <laughs> it doesn't exist. half the buildings have been demolished, and a huge tower's gone up, and it's like, even the cover. <laughs> I was I thought those buildings would be there forever. Right. So it's almost like I could do a, a second one that's just like a correction of <laughs> everything I thought was But even there. that, I mean, it would be a, a life's work. I yeah, think, it would be, it. yeah. Yes, I've started to think of the, you know, the scaffolds are everywhere mm-hmm. is part of this uh, change. I, I thought, well, I'd lo- just love to have one day where I don't walk under a scaffold. But now I understand the scaffolds are like a living organism, mm-hmm. and it just moves throughout the city. There's never a moment without them. They'll yeah. always be around. I mean, I think <clears throat> I enjoy them just because, for exactly what you said, it's part of the city. It's part of things happening, changing. Also, the scaffolding, I learned, doesn't always mean that, like, a bad change is coming. Sometimes they're actually just fixing or reconstructing old buildings. That's true. Um, So, you know, I don't have the knee-jerk reaction of being like, what's happening now? It's going to be terrible. (laughs) But because it's such – it's just, like, part of the city, like, you know, moving, breathing, changing, all that stuff, I'm fine with it. It sucks when it blocks a view of a beautiful building, but it'll come down. Yes. No, and the building will probably still be there, especially if it's historic when they're fixing up. Might look better. Yeah. And I also like how in New York, and I only noticed this almost after I left. So when you walk under scaffolding, sometimes, you know, they'll be, they'll be like cutting pipes and stuff. So there's like sparks coming out everywhere. Yeah. And you, they just let you walk on through. In California, they'll be like, seal off the blocks. Nobody <laughs> come anywhere near. And in New York, That's they're right. like, well, you know, it's... <laughs> Just the risk you take. Yeah. And it's like, this feels very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> the other day, I was, I got a little drop of the of the scaffold water right on my head. Yeah. And I worried about it getting into the eye. I don't often <laughs> were... worry about that, but I got sure. a little nervous. Yeah, like, you never know. What's going on with this? Yeah. Summertime, you get the air conditioner. Wintertime, you get a little melty snow from the scaffold. That's yeah. just what you do. You just yeah, have to walk. Sometimes you get sparks. Things. Once, <laughs> you never know. Yeah, once I this could happen anywhere. But I was walking down Second Avenue, and I was I'm always looking up at the buildings. Yeah. Um, and I was looking up, and I felt something land in my mouth. Oh. And it was a bird. Oh. Not the bird itself. <laughs> <laughs> you caught a pigeon. <laughs> yes. That's one of right the hazards my, of New York. Yeah. If you walk around with your mouth agape, a pigeon will just fly right in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I just remember being like, of all the places it could land. Yeah. Why my mouth? Yeah, that feels less lucky. 
Yeah, I know. Everyone's like, oh, good luck. I'm like, in Italy. What is it in New York? In New York, it means you're cursed forever. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Consigned to a life of darkness, I think, when that happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I don't, uh, well, I'm sorry that happened to you. Oh, it's okay. I lived. I didn't. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's going to take me a moment to recover from that. But um, what was the impetus for this uh, book you were working on the, for The New Yorker? Is that who originally got this going? Yeah, I mean, it all kind of came about very somewhat unexpectedly um you know Roz Chast yes so her and I were hanging out I like I'm a, such a fan of hers I've been a fan for so yeah. long and someone had introduced us um I forget someone like this is a really it's like someone tweeted at me yeah. that like Roz Chast talked about how she liked one of my books there you go so then I was like this is it I can email her <laughs> Also, not realizing like you can always email everybody all the time. You don't have to like wait for someone to tweet at you. And then her and I struck up a correspondence. I went up to Connecticut to have lunch with her. Oh, she has these parrots that talk, and every time I would say something, one of them would go, "Shut up." <laughs> well, that's welcoming. I know, and it was very. I was like, if I had a parrot, I'd probably train it to do that as well. Just when I spoke, when she spoke. Yeah. Hair was fine. Tell me more. Yeah. And then, <laughs> exactly. It's like, what you're saying is so smart. And then I talk, and it's like, you're the worst. Um, that sounds like yeah. an internal parrot. <laughs> I'm like, no, my own no. parrot. <laughs> um, so she then introduced me to Bob Mankoff, and I went into the offices. Um, Bob Mankoff is the, he, well, he used to be the the, the cartoon guy, the New yes. Yorker. Yeah. Um, so I went in to talk to him, and he, you know, he works with the gags. The gags were, like, the main thing then. And now um, Emma's in there, and she's kind of expanding it to a lot more online stuff, some long format stuff. It's a really great time for cartoonists at the New Yorker right now. But back then, it was mostly gags. Yeah. And I just wasn't good at them. Like, I remember submitting a few. I only did one round of submissions, and Bob was basically like, can you just draw differently. <laughs> 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 he is a very sweet guy, but you know, he likes what he likes. Yeah. Um and I was like, you know, I don't really want to do gags. I want to do comics about New York City history because I'm into history and I was kind of looking for a way to combine all of my external interests of like history and exploring abandoned buildings and put into comics somehow and it just kind of seemed like the natural way to go about doing that. Yeah. So we said yeah and then they ran a bunch of them and then I pitched the collection to, I was over at the Tenement Museum looking around at books I liked, and I noticed that most of them were put out by Black Dog and Leventhal. Mm -hmm. So I cold emailed them, which is not usually a thing you do in the publishing world. You wait to be tweeted um, at. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the real official way. <laughs> so I, you know, I, sh I showed uh, Becky Co there my work, and she really liked it. And she's like, you know, if we, once you have like a solid proposal, we'll take a look at that. I put one together, they liked it, and they put it out. And then it just kind of, yeah. I don't know, it was like a surprise to me. It was a surprise to probably people who have followed my work for a long time because I just sort of stopped doing what I've always been doing and just made this book. And it's very different from my other work. So. Yeah, but there is yeah. a, a, some uh, threats. For me, reading it, I pick up on that longing piece, whether that's because of the nostalgia aspect of it, looking mm -hmm. at what was, and that's, again, my perspective. And the amount of uh, lines, <laughs> the amount of yes. details that are just required to fill in the architecture, mm -hmm. whereas in your previous work, there's a lot of emptiness. 
There's a lot of um, uh, space that you wonder if that character is going to be able to take up. Are they uh, are they unable to fill the space that they're in? Are they concerned about that? There's a lot of empty space in things like Drinking with the Movies is the one that I just reread, mm-hmm. but uh, Drinking at the Movies, right? Is that what? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I don't know why I can't remember my own book title. Yeah. Drinking at the Movies, <laughs> drinking yes. At the movies. Uh, drinking with the Movies is something different, <laughs> but <laughs> Drinking at the Movies. I just was struck by how much uh, the, the uh, wonderful use of the negative space and how hmm. that is a kind of force around the characters either keeping them there or whether they fight that. Like sometimes there'll be a cluttered apartment that you'll draw, yeah. but even the clutter doesn't quite fill the space that they're in. Sure. I mean, it's it's um, it's interesting that you would see that because I actually haven't read that book in a long time, so I'm almost like struggling to remember what was in it. But you're right. Sometimes there's bl- total blank in the background. Sometimes. Yeah. And that was almost, from an artistic point of view, it was just me. Like I didn't go to art school. I taught myself how to draw. You can tell when you look at my early work. It's very uninformed of uh, drawing skills. <laughs> it works well, fine. I don't mean, I'm not disparaging it at yeah. all. Yeah. yeah, I think it's totally fine. I'm not like, well, I really work. Um, <laughs> right. I'm on board with it completely. But it wasn't actually like a conscious thought to put to do that. And it's interesting in retrospect to realize because I didn't think it through when at times I didn't put backgrounds in or when I, it was just mm. like exactly what was happening and while it was happening, so if there was like no backgrounds, I'm sure it reflected my actual uh, mental state at the moment versus like when it's very cluttered. Yeah. But I just had no, that wasn't a conscious decision. So it's something to almost notice later. And right. You're not the first person who's noticed that. And I, every time I'm like, oh, yeah. That's weird. I didn't. <laughs> well, there's so much uh, attention to it. The contrast to the, with the new book, I think, is, just, mm-hmm. is where I picked up on it or even thought about it. Um, because you're rendering them with such detail, there's, there is some historical a- accuracy that you're bringing to it. And often the change when you look at something that's more modern or present day is less detail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, something that is more ornate that then becomes a New York sports club. Yeah, something or like you that. take off all the... All the trim and whatever. I'm not good at architectural terms, but all the right. fancy doodads on the building. Even, uh, yes, whatever the details are, cornices or on the external features of the buildings, uh, on like a bay window will be just shaved off and it'll just be a rectangular form. You know, yes. It's just a re- reduction, reducing it <laughs> to just a function. <laughs> yeah, it's sense. really just like this is a window and that's all it is. That That definitely happened around the 60s. When they were like, everything old is terrible, everything right. new is great, and minimalism <laughs> is the the style. And you can usually tell when something was done around that time, which is a lot of the reconstruction around New York. And that's how we get Penn Station. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Which I was just in. Oh, it's depressing over there. But maybe they'll, maybe they'll do something to it. I don't know if it can ever really escape its fate as like a depressing, <laughs> weird <laughs> underground universe. We just should accept it, is what we're I yeah, guess saying. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful in yeah, its own in its own decrepit or nightmarish, <laughs> horrible way. <laughs> way. But now, did you have family history in New York that triggered the mm. uh, fascination with it? No, um, I remember being younger and being like, "I'll never go to New York." I don't know why I thought I was just like, "It's terrifying," and it is, it was. Um, yeah, and I grew up in the the country, and so yeah. for me, I was like, that's who I am. I'm a country person. Yes. But I, no one really knows who they are when they're, like, 12. No. God, God forbid the... we, be, <laughs> we are the same person we thought we were when we were 12. <laughs> um, 
Then I moved to San Francisco, and then I moved to New York. And moving to New York was also like a very spur of the moment, totally unplanned idea. I was just like, I'm going. Like, I'm peacing yeah. out. Yeah. Um, no plan? No uh, money? You got some stuff in a van? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, I didn't even have enough stuff to put in a van if I had to. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just like left San Francisco, came here because I just met some cartoonists here. And you know when you're like in your early 20s and that's enough. You know, you're like, oh, I met someone and they were cool. I guess I'll just move 3,000 miles. Yeah, I remember that <laughs> like, feeling. be friends with them. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and now yeah. I'd be like, I got to have a job, I got to foot, all this stuff. <laughs> um, and then the the architectural, so yeah, no family over here. And the Because they are originally so. from, from California or they yes. were? Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. All my family is, well, by all, I mean like my mom and my brothers um, are based in California. And that's where you grew up, essentially. Yeah, yeah, I grew up in like an old farmhouse. It was built in like the 1880s. Um, it's a very cute house. It was, uh, we had to water it down a lot during the fires. Yeah. So that's kind of why I went home. I was like, we got to save the old shitty house that we <laughs> live in. Um, but you grew up around but, old things then. Yes. Yeah. So there so, was a little fascination. Yeah. So, and I always really liked that. Like our house had all these little details, like, um, you know, the upstairs where I slept, where my room, my brother's room was, used to be an attic. So it's just like this, like, triangle-shaped wood attic. And we had these old little ornate door. Like, we had this door. The original door was sealed up behind a bookshelf. And I was obsessed with it as a kid. I was like, if I open that door, it's a portal to Narnia. Like, yeah. that's, we have one in the house. <laughs> and I would just, like, stand outside on the porch and look at it. And you just could never open it. And it was so cool. So I always had that fascination with interesting spaces. Yes. And I remember going to friends' houses who lived in the suburbs. This is, like, kind of rude to me, but I just go to their tract homes and be like, like, my brain doesn't, there's nothing to latch on to. Yes. So just kind of like. Listen, I'm right there with you because I, too, grew up in an old house, and I grew up in the room with the attic. Now, that particular yeah. attic door uh, was the room where was where the ghosts came through. So sure. it was a portal. Yeah. <laughs> In terms oh, yeah. of that, but uh, all the there would it was an old house that then got built onto, and so there would be a window that used to be the door, and then it would lead oh, through. Love there was a lot of little staircases and all manner of strange architectural features. But then mm -hmm. you go to some place, uh, even like Los Angeles, and you say, "My God, this is ugly." Or even some places of uh, Northern California, you think, "Well, they just didn't," because it's that '60s kind of architecture stuff that's out there. Some mm -hmm. of it, '50s, '60s, and it would be, uh, yes, like you see, there was an internal thing. I don't want to be rude. In some of these suburban homes, some of the newer developments, I know you spend a lot of money on it. It's boring. Yeah, and I don't. I certainly don't want to tell anyone. You know that decision is wrong because not everyone is so affected by their environment. So some people, I guess that's true. can move in and they they're just fine. And like God bless them because yep. that's what is available in mass right now. And if they're happy there, like that's great. I am a more tortured soul, so I I my environment's very important. And it's yeah, when there's nothing really to. It's it's definitely it's not like a materialism thing either. Like I can do without all the stuff I have. Yeah. But I just need either the house I live in or the city I live in. Like my apartment in New York was just a basement. It wasn't there was, you know, white walls, one of those like cheap parakeet wood floors. And there was nothing in the building that was special. And up in Greenpoint it's all like, you know, these vinyl sided row houses. They're yeah. really yeah. they're terrible. Yes. 
but New York was around me. Right. So it has to be one or the other. I either have to be in love with the house I'm living in or I have to be in love with the city I'm living in Yep. in order to have that balance. So if I'm just living in like a suburb of a town where it's nothing. It's hard. I don't know how yeah. they do it. I, do, I honestly don't. I, don't I couldn't know, but do God it. God bless them. I couldn't I do it. Yeah, yeah God, yes. Someone's got to do it, and if yeah, they're not no. tortured by it, good for them. Yes, I imagine there's a big relief. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but sure. there's probably also a bar in the basement. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. A little it's, tiki it's, bar. Yes. <laughs> it seems popular. difficult to me. <laughs> um, but just speaking of stuff, you have a lot of stuff. You had a lot of stuff. Had, yes. Okay. so And you've been moving around, as we've talked a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens to all that stuff? This is things that you've gone, as I have in my life, and because you grow up in an old space, maybe you seek this kind of thing out and bringing these uh, maybe architectural details, old signs, mm-hmm. going into the abandoned places and taking a little piece of it back with you. I yes. gather you had a lot of stuff. I I did have a lot of stuff, certainly not as much as it looked because my apartment was 300 square feet and you can like (laughs) just fill it it to the ceiling. And then I was thinking about it in the house I live in now. It's like if I brought all my stuff, I would just fill another 300 square feet. Like I would, it wouldn't be like filling the whole house. But yeah, so I spent many years exploring abandoned buildings, mostly asylums and hotels and farmhouses. And if I knew they were going to be demolished, I would take stuff from them, which some people frown on, but it's going to go into a dump. Yeah. And um, because these are old structures, especially the asylums, there's a lot of ornate door hardware, which is just like very lovely to look at. Um, Yeah, old signage, um, old medical tools. So, but there was a connection in the fact that I was really into the history of the treatment of mental illness. So I'd read a lot about it, and then when I would find patient files and medical tools, it'd be like, well, here it actually is in real life, and I'm not letting this go into a dump. Yeah. So I I took a lot of that stuff, filled up my apartment with it. Um, I I don't think I would do that again just (laughs) because that was a very special place and time in my life, and I don't really... I'm definitely not a minimalist, but I don't know if I want to like live in a museum. Right. I will have. I would like to have a house and have the museum room in the house. Wouldn't that be like, nice? Yes, that would be. <laughs> yes. That's my dream. Couple of nice display yeah. cases. Yeah. Keep the dust off. Couple of things. Put objects on the walls next to paintings or something. Mm-hmm. And nice then and curated. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want. I don't need to be like living amongst it. Like I would bring home patient files with mold, and how you get rid of that is putting them in Ziploc bags and sticking them in the freezer. Yeah. And I don't want to really be living in a house where someone's like, "Can I get some ice cubes?" And then they're just like, "Whoa." <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's been uh, somewhat put to bed. Only and also the stuff is in storage now, um, and it's in my mom's garage. And so I'm just like I'm adrift at the moment. Yeah. So I I don't have any. Stuff, which is weird since I had so much stuff. Yes. For like, I was rooted in New York for 10 years in the same building, same apartment. So that's very rare. So I had all this shit and now I don't have any of it and that's fine. I don't like miss it. I'm not laying in bed and being like, those are neat door handles I got. <laughs> like, it's fine. <laughs> they can probably be in storage forever. Um, but to not, yeah, to not have a home and to not have all the things that I had in my previous home is a very different. It's a very different feeling, you know, physically yeah. and emotionally to just kind of be like let loose into the world and not knowing where I'm going to be and like where I'm living. It's very weird, especially well, to do in my mid-30s. Yeah, well, Were you ready for that? 
No, I got evicted from that apartment. Ah. So I did not see that coming. Um, and I, and I mean, I just, so I went back home to California and I didn't know what, you know, I, I could have rented a place, not necessarily in San Francisco, of course, but like just anywhere. Um, but I didn't know what I was doing, so I went to live in my mom's garage attic. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, I can't live in my mom's garage attic in my mid-30s. <laughs> this is unmanageable. Uh, and right now I live in a house in uh, Boys Hot Springs, in a rented house out there. And it's a very cute town. It's in Sonoma, um, mm. but it's it's tough. But I don't have any of my things in it. I just like work in a kind of empty studio space. It's really weird. But I don't know. You're making it through, I guess. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm just kind to. of looking. I'm trying to figure out if I want to move back to New York yeah. or if I want to stay there. So it's I got some decisions to make. <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah. Um, well, it uh, strikes me with the going back to maybe the earlier work a little bit, but also in, in this one. Um, bec- and again, I, I project because that's what I do. But uh, with the, the earlier work, I have to assume that that, that is your story. <laughs> Maybe it's mm-hmm. not, but I mean, I read it as very much a, a you know, first-person account of what was going on for you during that time. Yeah, yeah. it is. Okay, and uh, I, what I'm always struck with when that's the case is uh, the honesty that's there, and the, you look at the, and maybe it also ties into the sadness for me, but you look at the people in the graphic novel, illustrator, comics world, mm-hmm. you're Dan Klaus and your Chris Ware and Phoebe Gluckner and, you know, name a bunch. Um, They all are so honest in their work, even if it's obscured a little bit in in some of those uh, characters with various alter egos and things being put into place. Yeah. But um, it's it's, uh, admirable and I find it incredibly brave to put it all down there and to to have that be almost like a diary of time in uh, a particular space or... Sure. Uh, I mean, that's what I love about comics, and that's why I fell in love with it, was it is a genre where people, it's it's not, like, easier to be, people are honest in all kinds of other memoir works, but there's something yeah. about the visual aspect of it that I think really drives it home. I remember when I first discovered comics, I was reading Julie Doucet's My New York Diary. Yes. And the way she draws her room is just like a disgusting pigsty <laughs> all the time. And she goes out into the world and does these things and makes these decisions where a character in a fiction novel might not do because they're not because they, you got to make it a little you got to you know dress it up a little or have it be more fanciful and I was just like this is amazing this is just her life it's not like fantastic it's not you know it's not Matt it's just like what she's doing and it's gross and she's living in a pigsty and it's like that's what I want to do I want to be able to just tell my story of what's going on without feeling like I have to dress it up or anything. It was a very natural decision for me to just be like, Here, here's me. You know, I'm a messy person, too. I have a lot of faults. And I am, and when I read other people's comics, I'm very comforted by people openly talking about how shitty they can be, basically. <laughs> just being like, I'm an imperfect person, and this is my actual life. And Yes, you can write a fictional character like that, but when you know that it's an actual person, it's very different. It's yeah. much more relatable. I'm much. It's easier for me to be like project myself into that situation, and it also. But it takes a very specific type of person, I think, to be comfortable putting the ugly aspects of their personality out there. And cartoonists tend to be 
those people. Like they just don't really have a filter and they're just like, here you go. (laughs) (laughs) And I love them for that. Like they're the best group of people. Um, And I, I, I don't know. I was talking to a friend about this. I'm not sure if it's because of the industry itself. If you are very popular in comics, like the ceiling of success is still very low. Yes. Um, so you can be very successful within the industry, but you're still always struggling. Um, you know, there's not, there's never like a huge amount of money coming in. You spend a lot of time sitting by yourself, quietly drawing, and that just sort of creates a person in the world who's kind of raw, and they never really get the ego that comes along with um, regular literature or film or TV, where you get these like massive public accolades. You know, it kind of stays within the industry. So just there's just a lot of people who are real, you know, even if they're very successful within comics. Yeah. And I think it just sort of sort of, you know, just breeds a form of honesty that doesn't really exist in many other art forms. Well, I'm familiar with the low ceiling because podcasting is the same way. (laughs) Podcasting doesn't make you super famous. (laughs) Surprisingly. Oh, no. I'm going home. I know. This interview's over. (laughs) It does okay for the guests. (laughs) It's just the host. No, it's wonderful, and I love doing it. But um, you said something about uh, seeing those drawings of the spaces that were a little messy. Um, You, when did you start drawing your own spaces? Because that happens in uh, uh, drinking at the movies. There's some start you... Not right away, but you start to place it a little bit, and you say, this is the apartment that I'm living in, and this is mm-hmm. what's uh, in there. Here are my things a little bit. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's interesting because the first things I drew when I was in my early 20s and I found comics, um, I just drew the room. I was, I was renting a room in San Francisco, and I just drew my room like over and over and over. I was also very sick during that time, so like my room was my universe. Yeah. And I just I was constantly drawing the room and then some places around the city too. And then I sort of forgot that I liked doing that. And I went and made all these other comic books <laughs> and almost didn't really remember until drinking the movies that I liked to do that. Yeah. And then I kind of forgot again, <laughs> <laughs> made a different book. And then I figured out the New York stuff. And then that's when it really drove it home to me how important spaces are to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm just going to throw myself into this and do that for a while. But yeah, I think the first thing I really ever drew was just like a picture of my room. And I was like very, it was very detailed and I kind of colored it in with markers. And, you know, that was before I had any kind of agenda. So I was like, I can work on this for a month. I don't have, you know, a book to work on. I was just a person drawing. So, and I actually miss that. I miss that time a lot. It was very just free form, whatever. Yeah. And the process of making the the Tenement Towers and Trash book. That uh, was over many years, too. Well, no. No? <laughs> it should have been. <laughs> um, had I done that, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, of course. I've but heard. <laughs> had I done, had I known what I would have done is given myself about five years to do that, but I did all of that in less than two years. Oh, um, I thought some of the drawings had been from like 2010 or something. No? No. No. Um, I made it, I have predated them if they were like, Oh, um, I see. Like the time I the, of the picture was 2010, but I did all the drawing ah. later. Um, I, w- I wish that was true. Maybe I wouldn't have gone as insane as I did working on that book because it's not a small book. It's not. <laughs> if it's people don't know, insane. It's a it's a big book. 
Yeah. And not only are there drawings of buildings, but then there are the things that I'm so fond of because it's the way my mind works too. Is you're wandering down something, and well, what was on this corner? And you have personalities, you have stories of the things that were invented there. Mm-hmm. It 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 is a investigative uh, process as well to reveal some of the histories that are in there and some of the characters that have populated the city. Just the other day, I I, I had a, a lunch special from Veselka. You know, the restaurant, and I had the matzo ball soup and a chicken salad, and as I was eating the chicken salad uh, sandwich, two pieces of white bread, a little crisp lettuce, and then a scoop of the chicken salad, Mm -hmm. and I started to think, when did we start using the scoop for this chicken salad, and then who invented the scoop, and was the ice cream scoop always made for ice cream, or did it happen from a more savory perspective? And what I'm (laughs) saying is I can follow the line in the same way that some of the things that you put into the book. Yeah, and I i mean, I love that your brain works that way. I wish more, I guess I shouldn't say I wish more people did because then I might be put out of a job, but like just noticing <laughs> those little things is just what I find so fascinating about the world at large too. But um, ugh, I had something to say and then I actually started listening to what you were saying and I forgot. <laughs> that happens to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Curses for being a good listener. Um but I could look things up on Google, but I like when there's an illustrated story to go with it instead, and then I learn something yeah. about oh, it. Oh, right. That's what we were saying, yes. uh, the actual book, <laughs> the reason I'm here. <laughs> um, yeah, it is definitely a – it's a massive book. It's like 300 pages. It's physically enormous. It's like a coffee table book, which yeah. I always feel – horrible for anyone who shows up for a reading and then is like stuck walking home with it. Some people will be like, I'm just going to order it online. I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> that's, I understand. I would have brought it today for have, to have you sign it. It's, it's just too big. Yeah, no one wants to carry that thing around. Um, but because it is such a massive book for me to have done it in such a short period of time is insane. Yes. Like no one should do that amount of work. And when I look at it, I feel crazy when I look at it. I mean, mm-hmm. I in order to do it, and I, I did it too also when I got evicted and I moved back home to California, and then I went to McDowell, and then I went to Colorado for a few months. Like, I was constantly moving around, but just working on this thing for like 16 hours a day within the this greater frame of chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a miracle I managed to pull it off, but it might, I did sacrifice, like, you know, physical health, mental health, personal well-being, um, which I would never recommend anyone do. No book is that important. I don't think so. Um, right. Yeah, so when I see it, it's hard not to see it as just, like, this canonization of, like, a very strange time in my life when I was not really living in the real world, but also having to very much live in the real world while I was moving around. So I don't know. I I keep seeing it around the city, and part of me wants to be like, um, what a what a lovely thing I've made. I should be so proud of myself. And part of me is just like, oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> There's just like, there it is in the window, my insanity. <laughs> <laughs> so in that way, it is tied to some of the early work, and maybe not unlike some of the other graphic novel things that we're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, where the p- people put all, their all into it. Yeah. Your all is in that book on those pages, those yeah. 300 pages. And I think even as – I what I thought I was doing for a lot of that was removing myself from the book. You know, I only have a few comics where I'm in it. And I was like, I'm going to step back, do some history stuff. Do, but 
even when it's just a page of then and now illustration, like I'm all over that book. Yeah. Like I, there's no way to not project a lot of myself into it. And something I didn't notice until afterwards when someone pointed out is when I draw a cityscape, I don't draw any people in it. Yeah. There's no people. Right. So you look at these cityscapes and now I see them so different. Because when you're working on something, you go on autopilot. I sat there and I watched all episodes of Shark Tank. Like, that's where my brain was, you know? Like, it wasn't in, like, what am I putting into this? It was just like, I'm going to bang out this drawing, uh, watch Shark Tank, and then be done. But, you know, but then, you know, subconsciously, you still put these things into your work. So the fact that I didn't draw any people, which I thought was just because I don't like drawing people, but it was a very, it was an unconscious decision that reflected my mental state of, the way I feel about New York and living here, which is like a lot of long, lonely walks, mm-hmm. which is a thing I'm very fond of doing, but this can be a very lonely city. Yeah. Um, and I had a lot of, I had a hard time when I was living here. Um, you know, I was like heavily drinking for many years and then I wasn't and I wasn't really fixing a lot. I had a lot of problems. So I would just walk around and be by myself a lot and completely came out in the art, even though I didn't think I, that's what I was doing. Well, you moved here with no real plan. No plan. No real support system other than you knew some comics that were here. Yeah. And honestly, they're great people and they make good work, but they're (laughs) not always the best social group. Oh, it's like pulling teeth to get cartoonists to hang out. Talk about lonely walks. You're with them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love my cartoonist friends to death, but it's like hurting cats. Absolutely. So uh, what I'm just saying is that it is... I'm not surprised to learn that it was difficult and or lonely mm-hmm. uh, during that time uh, where you're figuring it out. Yeah. And I, I had lonely walks yeah. in San Francisco around that age. That's another city that can be very lonely. Oof. And I you know, I lived alone. I worked alone. It was a lot of time alone. Yeah. Um, I'm actually reading this book right now called The Lonely City. And it's, oh, I should remember her name, but this woman's writing a book basically about wandering around New York by herself and looking, she's looking at uh, loneliness through artwork. So it's like all this art that I thought I also I didn't care about, but the way she uh, kind of like pulls loneliness out of these great works of art is totally fascinating. Wow. It makes a lot of sense. And it's just I never would have considered it before. It's a really good book. I'm only about halfway through. So if it, it goes bad <laughs> and you read it, don't blame me. But I think it's really the way she describes what it's like to be a lonely person surrounded by people is just like she really gets in there and and nails it and then also is making me see artwork different and I was so it's very fascinating but yeah it can be a very lonely city and if you're making artwork about the city that's going to come through yes were you lonely before do you identify as a lonely person now um I think there is a big part of my personality that almost likes being lonely like I I derive a lot of creativity from it um I have I've been that way since I was a kid. My mom always tells these stories. Um, like uh, she, I had a birthday party once, and uh, you know I like played with my friends for a little while, and then she came in and found me reading, and she was like, "This is your party," and I was like, "I already played with them for half an hour." And I was like seven, you know, <laughs> and I used to shut myself in my room and listen to these adventure tapes I had, and I would draw. Or I would read like all the C.S. Lewis books multiple times. Um, so I think even in childhood, I was constantly looking for ways to isolate myself. Yeah. Um, so that's just sort of how it's always been for me. But at the same time, I 
deeply, deeply love hanging out with my friends who are like I'm not a person with a lot of friends. I like have a very small uh, social group, but I have them wherever I am, and I have my best friends and I have my close friends, and I like nothing makes me happier than hanging out with them. Right. So while I can be like a very solitary, lonely person, I need people. Um, probably yes. not as much as you know very social people do, but I like very much need them to maintain my sanity and also just to like goof around. Absolutely. Like talk to someone else. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I've always uh, put it this way in that I don't have a fear of loneliness, but I have a fear of being left alone, mm. which is somehow different in my mind. I think it is different, um, but it's a, sim a similar kind of thing. I like to have the friends around. I like to know there's people I can, you know, have a little fun with. Yeah. But uh, the loneliness part, I mean, I can spend hours. Yeah. Days. I mean, I spent like months to years by myself often when I lived here, which is, I would not recommend. That's maybe a little bit too much. Yeah. yeah, you can definitely go too far into that world. But one thing that's so wonderful about New York, especially for a lonely person, um, and again, I don't use that word negatively, but for me, living in New York, you know, even though I, I sometimes went like weeks without seeing people, which again, I don't recommend, yeah. the, the, best, the best years in New York were when I... Um, shared a studio space actually uh, Lisa Hanwell was in that space we were just talking about her mm -hmm. and then I could go and do my work but like also be around my core friends yes um, that was a very beautiful thing but that's that's not gonna last but it was you know if I could work and then go out a couple times a week have dinner with some friends or just watch bad TV those were the, the best years doing that <laughs> but um, because it's such a solitary existence in my little studio in Greenpoint, I needed to have the city around me. Like, I need the chaos around me if I'm going to be very quiet and sitting at home working by myself. Because now I'm in a place where I'm quiet, sitting at home by myself, but I also live in a very quiet place, mm. and there aren't any people around, and it's not good. It's tricky. Yeah. yeah. It's like there's something about having chaos around a, a calm, solitary life makes it balanced. If yes. you have too much calm and solitary, it's like the... Again, it's like the brain can't latch on to anything. Yeah. So it just kind of spirals out. Uh-huh. I'm tempted to ask what sign you are. Uh, Capricorn. Interesting. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. That just wasn't what I expected. But uh, fascinating. What did you expect? I expected you to be more on the Libra side of things. I don't know what that means. I actually don't really know much oh, about well, signs. Oh, just seeking out balance and uh, oh. having a kind of uh, – it's one of those dual signs, so you have to have the – a little bit of chaos and a little bit of order, and sometimes that's at the same moment. <laughs> that would make more sense. I feel like some every time I read about Capricorns, half of it makes not even half. Some of it makes sense because you know yeah. you also you can make sense of any of them. Yeah, yes, um, something to latch self fulfilling onto. prophecy. Yes, but a lot yes. of it, I'm just like they're very Type A personalities, and I don't identify with that at all. Right. So. That's why I'm surprised a little bit. Yeah. This, I don't know if you know, but the science is, <laughs> science is out on astrological <laughs> science. <laughs> I've heard of it. I've been meaning to look into it. <laughs> science. I'll write it down. Um, when you went back uh, in October to, to, the, to your family's house and things were happening and burning, mm -hmm. were you tempted to document or draw? No. Um, and the only reason I wasn't is because I'm not in a place in my life where I'm doing that right now. I'm kind okay. of stepping back and um, not really writing anything down, which is kind of a bummer because a lot of stuff is happening. And I know in the future, I'm going to be like, why? Why? Like, could, 10 minutes a day, I could have written it down. 
Stuff will happen um, again. Exactly, right? I'm like, where, why do I think I'm going to have, suddenly have this life where I don't do anything ever? And then I'll have all the time to write it down. Um, the only thing I made was like a quick little sketchy comic about um, going to Whole Foods and like, yeah, while the hills were burning and just being like, what a, what a weird thing to just go about my daily life. And it's strange. Yeah. And then you, you step outside and like the hills are just on fire. Right. But then life moves on inside of chaos. Which You're is still very... waiting for the color to pop up or which line to go in or. Well, maybe yeah. they don't do that out oh, there. Yeah, they, they don't have <laughs> to do that back there because there's like thing. five people in the Whole Foods out there. <laughs> right. But I get, I don't know why that the color and the number thing stresses me out so bad <laughs> when I'm here because I just it's so simple. You're in the line. There's a color. There's a number. Tells you where register to go yeah. to. But every time I get out there, I'm like, I get it. Ah, what, but what if it? I can't see the numbers, and it's gonna be on that side, and like, right. I, just, like, oh, I pray it's not back. number ten because that's on the other side, and yeah. you're looking at the, the the you know one through six or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! But then, and yes, you're on, you're heightened, you're on alert, yeah. you're ready for your time because you don't want to blow it. Yeah. But if you look away when they put the thing up, but then some when somebody jumps, somebody doesn't follow the system. Yeah, it messes oh. everything up. Oh. Yeah. And you feel it. The whole group feels it. Yeah. There's like this collective like heightened anxiousness and everyone gets so mad at that one person. Just want to pounce. Well, it messes up the whole system. There's exactly. Like, it's very orderly. We're all going by the system. Yeah. And if someone cuts, now it's like, well, my color and number don't matter at all anymore. <laughs> That's right. This is chaos. Nothing matters. I can't live like this. <laughs> You're having a breakdown next to some kombucha. <laughs> uh, well, you've lived in California, New mm-hmm. York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I've never lived there, but okay. I I go there because my friends all live you've there spent now. Spent some time there. Were yeah. you ever? Uh, I have a feeling I know the answer to this, but were you drawn to any of the kind of mystical things that happen out there? A lot of. Uh, Hot springs and a lot of witches up there in Northern California. <laughs> um, the hot springs are an interesting thing because, so in order for me to be okay with where I am at, yes. um, I have to find like a historical aspect of something that I can like really root myself in. Uh-huh. And one thing I did find in where I live in Northern California now is it has this history, like a very rich history of hot springs resorts from the 1800s to early 1900s, and then a lot of them disappeared. Yeah. Um, there was a craze that happened around that time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the all the rich people in San Francisco were like, we must travel by, not chariot, what am I thinking of? Horse and wagon. I don't Carriage. even know. Carriage, yeah. that's yes. it. Um, to these hot springs resorts. So they would build these like grand resorts around natural hot springs, and then they all just sort of disappeared. Either like railways uh, got removed. The town I live in, uh, Boys Hot Springs, used the resort used to be for like for everybody, because the railroad went straight to it, and then they took out that part of the, the rail line, and the town just fell apart. Yeah. Um, and now the the actual Boys Hot Springs part is part of a very fancy resort that you know if you live there you can't go to, which is ridiculous. <laughs> yes. Um, but a lot of them, a lot of the hot springs things up there are in ruins, and I go and like explore the ruins. So it's not so much the mystical aspect of them, which I know is up there and it's very strong and like up in Mount Shasta, there's a lot of a lot yeah. of that going on. Um, but I mostly see it in like a very straightforward historical context. Not that I'm like closed off to any of that stuff, especially some things I've been doing recently have definitely veered toward that area, but it's just like not the way my brain works, I yeah. guess. That's fascinating. 
that you rooted in the historical part of it. That there yeah. needs to be some some real uh, something tangible to latch onto. Yeah, well, I mean, it's also one of them is very interesting, the ruins in my hometown, because it was like the Indians were the, the ones who had discovered it. And for them, it was a very mystical, spiritual thing. Like you go and bathe in these hot springs and it's like, you know, being in touch with the land and whatever, you know, whatever their ethos was at the time. And then and then the white people came in and were like, we're sealing this up and it's for fancy people only and everybody else out. And it's to heal us. Yeah. Focus yeah, and, back on, on and the they me. turned it into um, a soda bottle factory. So, like, they were making all the seltzer water up yeah. there and everything. And it's the complete opposite of what nature intended these things to be, what the native peoples intended these things to be. But in an ultimate sort of you know, cosmic justice, the place could not stop burning down. Yeah. It just repeatedly burned down. Um, the recent fires were actually like they were even right in they were like an epicenter of the fire the worst part of the fire so it's almost just like maybe we listen to nature constantly burning something down and be like this is probably not what it's for take the hint yeah so these ruins are out there and fires have swept through they're just crumbling they look like castle but the hot springs are still there and bubbling up which is fascinating yeah Yeah. (laughs) you're just like as it was supposed to be. As it was supposed to be. Yeah. Well, my limited experiences is with the clothing optional facility up there at Harbin Hot Springs, but that also burned Harbin down. Harbin burned down, a yeah. A couple of years ago. So that was a mystical experience up there, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but probably for the best. <laughs> yeah, Harbin was cool, though. It was so weird. It was a weird vibe yeah. there. Yeah. And just so, like, visually, it was like a, kind of like Disneylandish almost. Yeah, I feel as if there may have been a little dark energy there, too. Something about it. I would agree. Something yeah. about it was a little nefarious. Yeah. People listening, if you know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Just trust and if you us. don't, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> it burned down anyway. Move on. <laughs> you won't be going there. Um, so you're going to be around for the uh, holidays? You're going to go back? Mm, I think I'll celebrate? be here. Um, I'm staying over in Greenwich. Uh, some friends of mine have this apartment that isn't selling, which sucks for them. But they were like, do you want to stay in it? And I was like, that's insane. <laughs> letting me stay in this empty apartment in Greenwich Village, which is wonderful. Yeah. So I think that um, that apartment's empty till early January, and I think I'll just go ahead and see it through, um, which does mean being away from my family on the holidays, which is it's a bummer. But um, luckily, my family's not like we. There's no difference between hanging out on a holiday and then hanging out on a random Tuesday. Sure. Like we all understand that, like. It's the same thing. As long as you're on the same yeah. page, that's that Yeah, they're not going to hold it against me. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think I'll stay. Uh, I don't really know what I'm going to do for the holidays, per se, but... you got some mm. friends or something around, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Probably All spend right. it with some cartoonists. Oh, good. <laughs> no, okay. I'm not going to sit by myself in the... <laughs> I've done the solo Christmas in an apartment in okay. New York. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> that's fine. Do something else this yeah. year, I hope. And, well, the book is wonderful. It's really terrific, and I hope, uh, despite its size, people still go out and claim it and uh, that uh, the delivery people carry it into the buildings. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) Like the mailmen are like, too big of a book, (laughs) drop kicking in the street. (laughs) But uh, I hope that it continues to be a success for you, and uh, you probably won't do a a next one. Uh, It's funny you would say that because on the way here this morning, I came up with my idea for the Uh next one, and it does involve New York which I thought I had put to bed. So had you asked me that question two hours ago, yep. I would have said no. But 
on the way here, I was like, I got it. Ah, <laughs> things are shifting. So, yeah, so maybe. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, we look forward to seeing what happens with that. Yeah, me too, because I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, uh, if you ever need to have a, you know, a mystic podcaster pop in and say anything, feel free. Yeah, do you use, know what? use my... <laughs> <laughs> We're having fun. Julia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. you the best. I tell you, Julia's great. The book is great. Her work is great. It's all great. And I was feeling not great before talking with Julia, but then afterwards, I felt a little better. It's like living in Lafrac City. Live a little better. We're going to be heading out to the Bay Area for our annual trip for the 2018 edition of SF Sketchfest. Saturday, January 13th at 5.30 p.m. Oh, that's a, that's the right time, isn't it, for comedy. We'll be live at Piano Fight in the Tenderloin with guests Kulap Velasak, Becky Bronstein, the witches from Astral Projection Radio Hour, and music from Ye Ming and The Rumors. It's free, but best to RSVP, which you can do through the websites. Uh, we're going to be having a lot of fun out there. We always have a terrific time, and why should this year be any different? Personalized reading this week goes out to Jason Montrose in Peaceville, West Virginia. Jason, take this guidance to heart. Maybe we listen to yeah. nature constantly burning something down and be like, this is probably not what it's for. Yep. And lucky numbers are 304, 1647, and 25, which also coincidentally correspond to all the addresses in New York where I've had a panic attack. Remember to wash your crystals this week and uh, also keep in mind, although this night is ending, a bright new day. Is just ahead. Deep Night is brought to you by Jameson Spirit Cleanser, the original prairie-grade sage that you can burn whenever things start making noises in your walls, or a spirit appears at the foot of your bed wearing 18th century sailing regalia. Deep Night is independently produced and performed by James Bewley, Deep Night Season 10 podcast image by artist Kelsey Roten. Deep Night Season 10 theme by Zach Gabbard. Music throughout the season provided by the talented roster of Howler Hills Farm. The Deep Night Podcast can be found on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and on Apple Podcasts, where we kindly ask you to subscribe and then leave a rating or a review. Once again, thank you for listening.